Good morning. This is Joyce with A Normal Christian Life. This is my morning voice, and I know it might not be morning where you are, but I'm recording part two of the old year and the new, and this is The Art of Reaching, part two. which is under Philippians 3.13, stretching forward to the things which are before. In order to enter into the power of this language, we must catch the picture which is before St. Paul's eye. Paul wrote Philippians. Like all other minds of the first order, Paul moves easily and naturally through the realm of images and analogies. He is as full of figures as a poet is. In this respect, Jesus and Paul were alike. Jesus is always picturesque. He cannot speak without painting a picture, but Jesus and Paul in their use of illustrations, were unlike in one point. Jesus drew his pictures largely from nature. In the open-air life of Palestine, he and the people were constantly in contact with the natural world. And the sights, the sounds of the fields, passed easily into his discourses. He weaves into his paragraphs the blossoms of the spring and the scent of the grass. And as we follow him along the bypass of his thought, we can feel the wind blowing on our cheeks and now and then can catch glimpses of the sea. But St. Paul apparently cares little for nature. It makes slight impression upon him He is interested in the world of human thought and human passion and human activity. It is the world of man from which he brings the images by means of which he will express the great ideas which God has anointed him to teach. One of the most conspicuous features of the world in which Paul lived was athleticism, athleticism, sports. We know something about it even in our day, for it has become a striking phenomenon of our time. And a school does not count itself complete without a gymnasium, and a university is of all universities most wretched unless it has a stadium. There are thousands of men who are interested in no other literature than in the literature of athletic content, contest, and to not a few, athleticism, you know, I might just start saying sports, has assumed the dignity and the importance of a religion. But in all this, we cannot reach the pitch of enthusiasm which prevailed in the Grecian world 
of the first century. Wherever the Greeks had gone, they had carried with them their abounding interest in the discipline of the body and in the development of physical prowess. The supreme spectacle on this earth to the pious Jew was the sacrifices in the temple. And the supreme spectacle to the Roman was the return of a victorious general, bringing back with him the trophies of the latest war. But the supreme spectacle to a Greek was the Ithmian Games. And of all the Ithmian Games, which thrilled the Grecian blood, the foot race was the most important. The man who won this grace made for himself a name which extended through the Grecian world. These contests brought together people from all directions. The most distinguished citizens presided as judges. There were throngs of applauding spectators. Some illustrious poet wrote a poem in honor of the victor, and the memory of his triumph was handed down from generation to generation as a rich legacy. Everybody, therefore, to whom Paul preached was familiar with the Ithmian games. The stadium, the gymnasium were stamped indelibly upon the eye. Everybody understood the discipline, sacrifices, and tremendous exertion of a racer. And Paul, looking on at all, said, Hmm, that is my idea of a Christian. That is precisely what a Christian ought to be and do. He ought to discipline himself. He ought to concentrate his energy. He ought to keep his eye upon the goal, remembering that the prize is not a fading garland, but a crown of righteousness laid up by God for all who love him. What new life is poured into this sentence when it is read in the glow of an athlete's face and when we can hear running through its music the labored panting of the athlete's breath? Now, I want to just mention aside, if you hear some breathing, I have the door shut with the baby monitor on, my husband Jerry has cancer. He went back to bed because he didn't sleep very well last night. So if you hear that, you know what it is. Forgetting the things which are behind, what new significance that possesses when we think of what a runner does. He kicks out the earth from under him as he goes, carrying nothing for the distance already passed. His eye is on the distance yet to cover. What does he care for the spectators whom he has left behind? One of them may have smiled at him, or others may have jeered at him. Here and there may have been a hiss. But for all these things, he cares zero, ought, nothing, for his eye is on the goal. Forgetting those things which are behind, 
and reaching forth unto those things which are before. That is the way the old version put it, but the English word reaching does not do justice to the Greek. Our revisers have substituted a stronger word. It is stretching. What is stretching but reaching raised to a higher power? Stretching is reaching with all the muscles tensed. It is a long Greek word which St. Paul uses. He uses it nowhere else in any of his letters, and that word contains 14 letters. He takes two Greek prepositions, welds them together in order to express what his mind sees and his heart feels. It is a stretch that he has in mind, a stretch forward and a stretch after. It is a purposeful stretching. The man is reaching forward with his eye upon a prize, and the eye draws the whole body after it. That, he says, is my idea of a Christian. It is in that spirit that I am running, and brethren, I ask you to follow my example. This is a good picture to hang up along with your new calendar to be looked at every day through the year. What a contrast between that picture and the picture of the ordinary Christian as we know him nowadays. How lethargic the average Christian is. This was written in the early 1900s. What inertia there is in him. How free from enthusiasm, how he loiters, how he dawdles, how he goes back and measures the distance already covered, how he turns to the right and to the left, paying attention now to his friends and now to his foes. The average Christian is not running. That constitutes the tragedy of modern Christendom. We have millions of professing Christians, but alas, how few of them are running the race. Let us hang the picture up then, along with the calendar for the new year, that will be 2023, and when the old lassitude begins to steal over us and we fall into a loitering mood, let us look up at the picture of the athlete running, and through him God will speak unto our souls. Man and women were made to reach. We are a reaching creature. No other creature on the earth does as humans. The little child shows the genius of our human nature almost from the start. Hold the baby tight, or he will wriggle himself out of your arms upon the floor. A little child is always reaching, striving to get hold of things that lie beyond him. His favorite direction is upward. Isn't that the truth? He will take hold of anything which he can get his little hands upon and pull it down if he can. As soon as he begins to speak, his language also reaches. His first sentences are questions. 
and what are questions but reaching of the mind. Before he was able to speak, he had manifested his nature in the movement of his arms. And as soon as the mind develops, the mind reaches also for the things that are before. As soon as he understands one thing, it has no further interest for him. He goes on and takes up another. A child adopts, yes, that was my stomach. A child adopts St. Paul's principle. I'm waiting on Cherry to get up to have breakfast. Paul's principle, forgetting the things that are behind, I stretch forward to the things that are before. There is eternal significance in the fact that Jesus did not put a man in the midst of his disciples, saying, this is what you ought to be. He sat in the midst of a child, saying, unless you become as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. And if it was a little child upon whose head Jesus pronounced the blessing, it was upon the head of the Pharisees that he poured out his fiercest condemnation. What was the matter with the Pharisee that Jesus opposed him so? What was wrong with this man that the master was always condemning him? He was not a murderer. He was not a thief. He was not a libertine. He was not a non-churchgoer. The most respectable people in all Palestine were Pharisees, and yet Jesus was always launching his thunderbolts against the Pharisees. What was the matter with the Pharisee? He was the one man in Palestine who had ceased to reach. He had attained his height and wanted to grow no taller. He had reached the goal and wanted to advance no further. That was the Pharisee, and that was the man for whom Jesus had no hope. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee folded his arms in great self-complacency and ran over the list of his achievements. There you have the portion of the Pharisee in the first century and in the 20th. He is the man who is satisfied. He prides himself upon his attainments. He thanks God that he has gotten further than his neighbors. But over there in the corner, there is a poor wretch who simply reaches up his soul to heaven saying, Be merciful, be merciful, be merciful to me. And the Son of God says, that that man in the corner who is reaching is the man who is pleasing unto God. This is a good thing to remember in the first days of a new year, for the past is likely to leave us in one of two conditions, in the mood of despondency or in the mood of complacency. We are depressed by the past failures and sorrows, or we are elated by the things which we have done, proud of the progress we have made. We always make too much of the past 
when we allow it to render us self-complacent. Forgetting the things that are behind, let us reach. If we should go up and down the world today and pick out the most promising people, the people whom we should say ought to stand in the first place, we should pick out the men of attainments, men who have built up a large number of virtues and graces, men who have achieved large and noble things. These men, we would say, are the men with whom God is best pleased and of whom largest things may be expected. But the Son of God, if he should move up and down our world, would not pick out men of attainment, but men of aspiration. For the man who aspires, or woman, I have to keep reminding you, and me, there is more hope than there is for him who has attained. It is not what we have already achieved, but what we want to achieve that fixes our place in the estimation of the eternal. It is not what we have accomplished, but what we desire that gives us our rank in the scale of being. The supreme supreme question, therefore, at the beginning of the year is not what have you attained, but how far are you reaching? The future belongs to the man who aspires. There is hope for everyone who is reaching, unless above himself... I have to stop. I think he's a, my husband's awake. I'll be back. Dream question, therefore, at the beginning of the year is not, what have you attained, but how far are you reaching? The future belongs to the man who aspires. There is hope for everyone who is reaching. Unless above himself he can erect himself, how poor a thing is man, and the only man in the world who is pitiably and hopelessly poor is the man who has no desire to reach forward to the things which are in front of him. If a man does not reach retribution begins at once its awful work. The doctrine of evolution has a great deal to suggest to us at this point. The latest science assures us that capacity is never developed except under pressure. Only those parts of our being unfold which are subject to a great strain. This has been true from the beginning, and only those forms of life have succeeded in climbing the long and difficult ascent which have been able to sustain the strain and the pressure. Whatsoever parts of our nature are not subject to this strain gradually fail. Why is it we cannot see so far as a man who lived in the Stone Age? 
We have advanced in a thousand things, but not in the power of seeing. It is because we have not stretched our eyes as the man in the woods does. Why do we not hear so keenly as the savage? It is because we do not stretch our sense of hearing. How does it happen that we have not the sense of direction in any such measure as it is possessed by the wild man in the forest? It is because it's not used. It's only the faculty that is stretched, which is built up and strengthened. The faculty with which we do not reach is the faculty that disintegrates and finally disappears. Charles Darwin, one of the greatest scientists of the last century, remember this was printed in, I think it was 1907, grieved in his later years that he had lost his appreciation for poetry, music, and art. As a young man, he had enjoyed all of these, but for years he stretched his mind in other directions, and at the close of his career he had lost his appreciation for the high things of the spirit. If history makes anything clear, it makes it clear that the prizes have always come to the men and to the nations which have reached. There was a time in history when Little Holland led the world in manufactures art, and commerce, how could this little nation achieve such an immortal renown? How did it become strong enough to defy Philip II of Spain and take its place at the head of the procession of the nations of the world? It did it all by reaching. No other man in Europe reached as did the Dutchman. He stretched forward over the western edge of Europe and picked up the bottom of the sea and on that built his home and having done that, he was ready to lead the world. Still another illustration is the New Englander. Through the 16th and 17th centuries, there were many colonies established all along the eastern coast of North and South America and most of them came to nothing. Those that most rapidly disintegrated were those in South America, on the coast of Florida, and of Central America, and of Mexico, where the conditions were most favorable, and where the food dropped from the trees into the mouths of men. Most of these colonies languished and shriveled, and finally died, whereas the colonies planted along the shores of New England, where the soil was rocky and the skies were gray, grew and flourished and gave luster to the new world. And why did the blessings come to the New Englander? Simply because he reached. He was always reaching. By his incessant reaching, he put iron into his blood and fire into his heart, and built up for himself a character which has been one of the dominating factors in the development of America. 
although God has spread a layer of Irishmen over New England and over the Irishmen a layer of French Canadians and over the French Canadians a layer of Italians and Poles, nevertheless, New England it is today and New England it will be forever because the New Englander of the 17th century, by stretching, built up a character and a temper able to lift uncounted generations to its noble standards and high ideals. The man who reaches is the one man who has hope of salvation. The man who does not reach is the man who is doomed. Uh, What do you think is the most dangerous period in human life? The wise men have never been able to agree. There are those who have contended that the crucial period is that which elapses between 13 and 17, and that if a human being can pass through that period with body, soul, and mind sane and spirit unpolluted, the future is secure. Others have contended that the danger period is in the early 20s when the blood is hottest and the world and flesh are the most dazzling and fascinating. Others have said that it is in the late 40s when a man has reached the top of the hill and knows it and realizes that henceforth he must look into the West. Others have said that it is in the early 60s when Ralph Waldo Emerson said, It's time to be old, to take in sail. There are others who claim that a man does not reach the danger zone until he has passed three score and ten. The fact remains that all periods of our earthly life are dangerous. There are perils all the way. A man is never safe, no matter how old he is. That was a stroke of genius in John Bunyan, which led him to paint a path leading down to hell, starting near the gate of heaven. There are two periods which may be regarded as especially dangerous. The first is the first period immediately succeeding a man's coming out of college. Through the college year, a man is obliged to reach. He lives in a world of books, and great ideals are always before his eyes. Unless he is absolutely incorrigible and a fool, he reaches forward to the things that lie before But on leaving college, he drops his books. He's not subject to the same pressure. The ideals are not held so closely before his eyes. It is in this period that he is likely to relax his efforts after the higher life and to fall into the current of the world. Philip Brooks always contended that the most critical years in a man's life were the five years after leading, leaving college and one of the most distinguished physicians of our generation in his latest book, 
he called attention in solemn words to the perils of the same period. One reason why our American cities are in the deplorable condition in which they find themselves is because thousands of our college graduates go to pieces in these five critical and crucial years. The other period which is found to be preeminently dangerous is the period which follows the attainment of man's ambition. A man starts out to do a certain thing in the world, and he does it. He makes his fortune, achieves his success, he does his work, and then, what a temptation it is to say, now I'll take things easy. I will make myself comfortable. In that moment, a soul begins to enter upon the road that leads down to death. How often is it noted that men who give up their business go rapidly to pieces physically? We have come almost to be afraid of having a man retire from business, feeling that after that he can't live very long. What is the explanation for this? It is the paradox of life that pressure enables a man to stand the strain, keep him alive, take off the pressure, reduce the strain, and you hasten a man's death. Mm. Therefore, a man ought never to retire from business unless he intends to go into some other business. There are different kinds of business, and all of them require a deal of reaching. You know, I'm not sure if I believe that or not. Let us hope. I took a drink. The time will come when a large number of our American businessmen will retire at the age of 60, even earlier, in order to devote the remaining years of their life to those large social and religious questions which have been received in the last 50 years with scant attention. Our men have poured their best blood and their finest energy into the development of the banking system and commercial system and industrial system and have left almost untouched those great problems of social and moral reconstruction which must be grappled with by the men of the coming generation. It is perfectly safe for a man to retire from the business of making money if he will go into this higher business of setting the world straight. Instead of taking things easy and doing as we please as we get older, we ought to take the law of Christ with new enthusiasm to our heart and crucify the flesh. That law is not intended only for young men of 20. It's for men over 60 and over 70. Crucify the flesh, sacrifice yourself, do the thing that you do not want to do, do not surrender to your moods, but fight them. Only thus is it that you can keep alive. And here again we can get a lesson from the racetrack. The runner does not do his best work at the first of the course. He saves himself a little 
he is careful not to overdo, he will get in the best work in the last hundred yards. That is the way in which we ought to live. The last years of our life ought to be the best, the fullest of self-sacrifice, the richest in obedience to God. There is something thrilling in the fact that Saul of Tarsus used the figure of the runner as the last figure which he ever used. When a prisoner in the city of Rome, with the flash of the headsman's sword in his eyes, he wrote these words to his dearest friend, I have finished the course. What is now, what is it now that Paul is running after? He's reaching forward after something. What is the prize? He has already told us he wants to be the man that God had in mind when Paul was created. He feels that Christ has laid his hand on him, and he wants to be the man that Christ had in mind. That was a supreme ambition of his life. That was the prize for which he was running with all his might. What a thrilling ambition. If that does not bring out the energies of the soul, what will? Think how men run for lesser prizes. They are running furiously all around us. The world is crowded with runners racing for the prize. They are running after money, after fame, after position, and no sacrifice is too great to make. No no self-discipline is too severe. Men will do anything, subject themselves to any strain in order to win the prize. Alas, how often they sacrifice the best things in this world in order to reach the goal. And what are these prizes? Garlands of pine, perishable garlands, all of them. What is wealth? A fading garland. What is position? A garland that is fresh but for a day. What is fame? A garland that soon wilts. And yet men run with every nerve tensed and every sinew stretched in order that they may win them. Oh, runner, stop and listen. The garland that you're after is fading one. Why don't you run for the garland that is immortal? But even in this running for fading garlands, there is something that stirs the blood. It is magnificent, even if it is tragic. Better expand one's energy in running for a goal, no matter what it is, than to idle away one's life on a bench in the sun. But if men will run so after failing garlands, how ought we be to run how ought we to run who have been laid hold of by Christ? He has seized us, his hand has been upon us, he has a purpose, there was a divine plan. We were laid hold of to carry out the plant. He did lay his hand upon us in our grandparents, our grandmother, grandfather, 
and in the Christian men and women who lived their lives before we were even born. To be that man or woman that he expected us to be and do. The work which he planned that is the goal toward which we ought to run with every fire and alive, every nerve alive. That is a lovely little poem of the poet Longfellow entitled Excelsior. A young man starts out at the foot of the Alps to make his upward way, bearing a banner on which is inscribed the single word Excelsior. Here and there, voices beg him to tarry, tarry a while. I better tarry a while with the break. I'll be back. I didn't realize I was so close to the end or I would have tried to finish it, but I'll just go back a couple sentences. A lovely little poem of the poet Longfellow is entitled Excelsior. A young man starts out at the foot of the Alps to make his upward way, bearing a banner on which is inscribed a single word, Excelsior. Here and there, voices beg him to tarry a while. The temptations become more and more seductive as he reaches the upper slopes. But turning a deaf ear to all, the youth grows bravely upward, bearing his banner, Excelsior. That is the spirit in which every soul ought to live. We are going up the mountain, and the word that ought to burn in our heart is Excelsior. Higher still and higher, higher always and still higher, until at last the words are frozen on our lips in the driving storm of the last day, and we pass into the world where the King is, King Jesus, and where our blessedness will be unending because we shall grow forever and ever. Thus ends the book. And I appreciate you putting up with all my frailties and faults all the way through both parts of this. And hope that it helped you face the new year. Bless you. Thank you. And bye. Bye.